on mypodcasthouse.com, you're listening to On The Grid with Tony Shebeki. G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of On The Grid here on mypodcasthouse.com. Thank you for joining us. We've got a big episode today. We've got Mark Brax joining us a little bit later on to have a chat about the world of two wheels. But right now, we're going to have a chat to Gary O'Brien in regards to, well, the lead up to Bathurst and also the uh, the news that we got late last week in regards to the death of Bob Jane. Good day to you, Gary. Hello, Tony. How are you? Mate, I'm fantastic, thank you. A little bit saddened by the the death of Bob Jane. Uh, I don't think it came as a surprise to anyone. We knew it was going to happen eventually at some point. We knew he'd been ill for quite a while. But I think what saddens me the most about Bob Jane is the the last maybe five or seven years of his life and the way that all played out for a guy that did so much for the world of motorsport. Yeah, indeed, you're quite right there. It, uh, when we've seen him sort of hobbling around and having the uh, family feuds that were going on, it just, it's just a sad way to go out. But as you said, uh, a true Australian motorsport legend, an icon, you'd call him, uh, for what he's done. And particularly in business too, which then rolled over and became associated with motor racing through Bob Jane T-Marts. Uh, exactly right, Gary. Well, let's have a chat about what Bob did for the, the world of motorsport. You saw him in his early days uh, up at Bathurst and through his Touring Car Championship Windsor. Was he, was he a seriously accomplished driver or was he just a, a really good driver? Uh, I'd call him a hard nut. Yeah? It'd probably be the best way to describe him. Perhaps not the most uh, eloquent driver that we've had. Um, I, I'd certainly say that uh, when you're regarding with Norm Beach and Ian Gagan, Alan Moffat, probably not quite as accomplished, but had the good material and had that dogmatic attitude that it's a win at all costs and I'll, I'll do what I can to do it. Um, a lot of people don't realise that he actually was a champion bicycle rider back in the 50s. Really? Yeah, and then, um, of course, he got into sports car racing, what they call a tourist trophy, a forerunner of what we now call the Australian GT Championship, raced a Maserati for about four or five years, a 300S. Uh, didn't win any championships, but certainly was right up at the front in the point score by the time they finished their series. And some of those races... Where most of those races were one-offs, of course. They, they weren't championship races as such, but raced all over the country. And, that. and then, of course, uh, touring cars and sports sedans and that type of thing took over from that period onwards. Went to the uh, first of the 500 races at Phillip Island, the forerunner to what we now call the Bathurst 1000 uh, in a Mercedes and, and won down there and then went back-to-back and won the following year in a Falcon, and then, of course, the Bathurst race became prevalent in 1963. So he he won up there as well twice. So four years in a row, he won that 100. Yep. Uh, sorry, the 500. Yep. So that's a phenomenal effort. And at the same time, he was racing in the Australian Touring Car Championship, uh, one-off races in 62 and 63, and then in a series in 71 and 72. And a lot of people will remember, particularly... Uh, the Oran Park finales, the, some of the biggest crowds ever seen at the circuit. Well, they say the biggest crowd, and uh, they put it down to something like 50,000, but the reality oh. was it was probably about 35,000. But at Oran Park in those days, how would you have known? Because um, no one took crowd figures, of course, but yeah. the place was certainly packed out. Even at 35,000, that's a big crowd to fit into Oran Park. 
Well, you try getting him, well, knowing those days and trying to get out of the place, what it would have yes. been like. <laughs> uh, you're, you're right. He was known for, as you mentioned, those two uh, 500 wins at Bathurst, four times championship racing-wise. But it was probably the work that he did off the track that he's most remembered for, and especially with the building of the Thunderdome at Calder Park, of which uh, he took in charge. Uh, also the fact that he tried to get the Australian Grand Prix to uh, to Calder Park, and was I suppose that was the forerunner to the Adelaide Grand Prix uh, starting, wasn't it? Yeah, indeed. And from 1980 to 84, he had Formula One stars out here. He bought a couple of the cars out here. Uh, certainly the Williams car that uh, Alan Jones won the World Championship came here after that World Championship was over to race in the Australian Grand Prix. So for those four or five years, as it turned out, they the Australian Grand Prix as such raced at Calder. And then, of course, it, been, it really took on a whole new flavour in 85 when it moved to Adelaide. But uh, a, a lot of people don't realise, too, that uh, he probably helped a lot of other people out with their careers. Um, John Harvey, for instance, raced a lot of his early years after his Speedway days with uh, Bob Jane Cars, a Ford Mustang, a Repco Tirana, uh, the McLaren sports car that he was... Uh, probably best associated with. And then, of course, he built those great, the, the Repco Tirana. Who, who yeah. forgets that kind of car with that big, huge wing on the back of it? And then the Monaro came along, and that was fairly successful. David Wall currently owns that car, and you'll see it running around. John Bow's been driving it in more recent times. And then, of course, the Chev Monza, which uh, it, well, morphed itself into what was a Toyota Supra and uh, Brian Thompson had it for a while and then, of course, the walls ended up with it as well. The other thing Bob is accredited with, and I was, I was reading an article, uh, Brad Jones was talking about uh, the, the association that Bob had with his family and I think uh, actually Bob is the godfather of, uh, of Brad Jones and, and also Kim. And uh, the, Brad was talking about the fact that uh, he... Bob was probably responsible also for the Seven Network actually coming into broadcast Bathurst and was a, a real uh, pioneer in getting that deal done. Yeah, well, that's true. And don't forget, he sponsored the race uh, at one stage. It was years, yeah. the, the Bob Jane Team Arts 1000. And, uh, you know, so you add that to it as well. Uh, it's just that, uh, you know, it, with the Thunderdome, cost him a lot of money to set up. And I think that's where the start of the rot set in with his family-wise because of the fact that, um, you know, uh, Rodney Jane saw that the, the current uh, way that he was going. Don't forget he bought Adelaide International Air uh, um, Raceway as well. And there was always going to be a lot of money going out, and perhaps not so much coming back in. Uh, the other major thing that uh, we've got to talk about too is his fallout with CAMS, yeah. a confederation of Australian motorsport. But to their credit, they did eventually... Uh, put him in the Australian Motorsport Hall of Fame and he was also inducted into the Supercar Hall of Fame. So, yeah, you know, uh, there was there's certainly some dirty water went under the bridge, but in the end there was some uh, some reconciliation, I guess, in some respects, and it's probably due to his ailing health and um, his age, of course. One thing that never seemed to reconcile was his relationship with his son, Rodney, and even to the, no. extent, even to the extent that the statement that was released by the family on his death was actually put out by Courtney, Charlotte and Robert, but there was no Rodney as part of that statement at all. Yeah, that was unfortunate fallout, but uh, 
there's always two sides to those sorts of stories and um, mm. we probably won't know the whole ins and outs of it and really do we want to do no. we need to go down that sort of path and and we know that uh, Rodney Jane did turn that business around, made it more profitable than it was ever with his late father. Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, just as we leave, Bob Jane, we saw a fantastic livery from the uh, the Jones team, BJR, uh, on Tim Slade's ZB Commodore, uh, commemorating uh, Bob Jane's orange Monaro. That was at Sandown. I wonder if we'll see that again uh, at Bathurst. I presume we probably will. Yeah, now that, um, of course, it'll be uh, in memoriam more than a, a, a reflection. And um, I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of respectful moment uh, to pay tribute to uh, what was a legend of Australian motorsport. No doubt about it. I'm sure something will happen uh, up on the mountain during this week. Oh, actually, I'm sure a lot will happen up on the mountain during this week. Gary, and we'll be there watching it. <laughs> is this, uh, how exciting a period is this for you uh, as, as a, a motorsport journalist, as a motorsport fan? Well, I've been going to Bathurst. My first Bathurst was 1966, which I believe <laughs> only for the start That's and the finish. A year I before I was born, Gaz. <laughs> I was, well, I was only about 10 at the time, so I was getting dragged around by my dad, who was actually driving VIPs from the airport into the circuit. And in those days, uh, not so much 66, but 67, when we went up there, the... Uh, the uh, Gallagher's girls got on the bus and handed everyone a little 10 pack of cigarettes. You wouldn't <laughs> think of doing that now. You'd be shot on the spot. You would be. <laughs> but promotion was always part of that event. And I'm still excited about Bathurst. I know it's gone through a lot of changes. A lot of people have criticised that we've gone away from production cars to we went to Group C, Group A, uh, the five litres, supercars, uh, the whole bit. But to me, it's just a progression. And um, it should be respected for what it is. And uh, as I said, I still look forward to it. I love this time of the year. We've just had our footy finals over and done with both codes. Now we get, we're getting in the spring pop proper and we've got Bathurst. Actually, I'm actually surprised you haven't mentioned anything about the Melbourne Storm yet. But uh, that's all right. That's uh, for another show, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, oh, well, I'm a Parramatta supporter. We oh, just collect more talk. wooden spoons than anyone else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can't rub it into anyone, can you? <laughs> no. Uh, just finally, mate, uh, your thoughts on this year's race. Do you, is uh, that Wink Up Dumbrell car look ever so powerful, did it, uh, up at yeah, Sandown? Yeah, it did. Um, you know, on reflection, that car was really getting out of the slow corner as well. They put it down to their shock absorber testing. They were riding those bumps at Sandown's uh, renowned for through those tighter corners. They don't have those at Bathurst. It's a more flowing circuit, and I think um, it'll be back to the drawing board. And if you're a Ford fan, I wouldn't be too surprised um, if it goes line ball again. Oh, good on you, mate. Thank you for joining us. We should mention, too, you've been at Winton over the weekend. Tell us about these super trucks racing. I, I, I only noticed that on the weekend. They look fantastic. Yeah, they're big, they're cumbersome. They and they are, they're fitting them. They're just big truck rigs, aren't they? Yeah, but, they, well, they're, they're race vehicles as such. They have two big uh, subframes in it that you couldn't break with anything. And um, they bolt big wheels and put big t diesel turb uh, engines in it at a turbocharge. They run coolers on everything from uh, a radiator cooler, a turbo cooler, an intercooler. 
gearbox cooler, you name wow. it, to try and keep the heat out of them. You walk past one of them after a race and just the heat just comes pounding yeah. off them. And they don't mind uh, mixing it up and having the odd hit here and there as well. Beautiful stuff. Hey, guys, look forward to catching you later on in the week up at Bathurst, mate. And you'll be a part of, uh, we're just about to announce too, that we've got a massive uh, week ahead in Bathurst. We're going to... Uh, produce at least two or three podcasts a day with interviews from drivers and look forward to you being a big part of that, mate. Well, thanks for that. We'll look forward to seeing you there. Have a safe trip up. Thank you, Gary. Gary O'Brien joining us here on The Grid. This is On The Grid on mypodcasthouse.com. As always, we catch up with Braxy to have a chat about things two wheels. Good day to you, Braxy. G'day, mate. How are you, Shabetz? I'm fantastic, buddy, and a favourite of Australia's, even though he's not one of ours. But I suppose we could call him a, a, a part-time Aussie. Jonathan Ray has uh, won another Superbike Championship, uh, which is a fantastic effort by him. Yeah, he is. Well, he is. You know, we, we claimed him pretty quickly. We claimed Russell Craig pretty quickly, didn't we? He was a bloody yeah. Kiwi. But, um, no, Johnny Ray, he married a Phillip Island local girl. Um, they do come down and they've got a house down here. He's, um, well, you know, he's, um, he butcher talks to me about the meat he gets and stuff. So he, he has settled in. He does the shopping and everything down here with the kids. So, real family man. But, um, you know, on the serious side, I'm pleased in four championships in a row. Never been done before in the, uh, Superbike World Championship. And, um, mate, they, they tried to change the rules to combat him and the Kawasaki, but uh, that, that didn't do anything. Um, and he came out on the weekend, um, basically missed out on pole position by Skerrick, but um, the Super Pole shootout to his teammate Tom Sykes. But we all knew that that was only the delay in the inevitable once he got into that race. And uh, uh, he did it on Saturday. He got into the lead on, in the first race on the Saturday afternoon and um, overtook his teammate after the first lap and then just disappeared into the distance. And then last night, that's when he actually won the championship, was on the first race, so there's uh, mass celebrations there, uh, as you'd expect. Uh, he was pretty over. It was pretty emotional, actually. I didn't think uh, Johnny Ray would be that emotional with it, but I think mm. it just proves how much these guys put into it. Uh, you know, the, we might be saying that there's not much competition for him, but you've still got to go out there and ride the bike and win the race and ride the bike as hard as and fast as you can. And it's probably harder to do when you haven't got uh, when you get into the lead, um, to keep riding that hard when you haven't got anyone pushing you. You've got to push yourself. And it just demonstrated the talent that Johnny Ray's got. Then he comes out yesterday, uh, the reverse grid, which is unique to the uh, Superbike World Championship. He started from ninth on the grid. Took him a few laps to get by. Chaz Davis, who was set, sitting second in the championship, or is second in the championship, uh, he got away on the Aruba Ducati and looked like he set up a, you know, about two-second lead over the rest of the field. But... Uh, Johnny Ray got the uh, club out and slowly worked his way through the field and got into the lead on about the 11th lap and see you later. And uh, just showing that man broke another lap record. So just showing that, you know, no matter what he's got, he still goes out there and gives it his all. And uh, he's signed with Kawasaki for another few years and you've got to wonder, well, what's going to happen? He's, uh, and no offence, uh, he's making the sport look boring, similar to what McDoan did in his reign of championships. Yeah in the MotoGP class from 94 onwards, um, you know, the talent is undeniable and you, you, know, you and me watch it and admire it. But when you know it's going to happen, it's like, it takes a bit of the sparkle away from um, 
Sydney down and being enthralled with it as well. But, you know, you've got to take your hat off to him. What can be done? I, I said this year they tried to nobble a bike. They took some revs off the Kawasaki's and uh, restricted gear ratios and everything. And uh, it doesn't matter. You know, the cream's always going to rise to the top, isn't it? And when your teammate, like last night's race, um, Tommy Sykes was struggling in fifth and he was like some 300 metres behind the leading pack that was uh, that was Chaz Davies, his teammate Marco Melandri, uh, Michael Vandermark who's come of age this year on the Pat Yamaha, the Dutch kid and also um, Johnny Ray and you think, mate, there's just Tom Sykes must be big, get off the bike and walk into the back of that shed and beat his head against the wall going, what have I got to do? I'm on exactly the same bike as this bloke and yet the difference between a pair of us is chalk and cheese. It must be really demoralising for blokes like that. No, you're right, Praxi. And uh, to talk about his dominance in this sport is just amazing. He's had 60 wins in World Superbikes <laughs> in his career, but 52 of those have come in the last four years. Yeah, and um, his, his win, rate, win and place ratio out of the 100 races he's done with uh, the Kawasaki team, I think he's been on the podium 67 or 80, 60 eight not sixty nine wow. times or something. It's just ridiculous that the the uh, consistency ratio and it's I suppose people would say, Oh, there's not much competition but when you look at the likes of, you know, Marco Melandri, a Grand Prix winner, um, you've got guys there, Chaz Davies, good rider, they're all good riders. Well, there's no if if you come at last in the world championship, you're still a good rider, let's face it. You know, yeah. they've all got talent out there. But it's just the way that some of them just um you know, Johnny Ray, I'm just disappointed that he did go to Kawasaki in the way after all those years with Honda because it's negated his chance for ever getting back into a, a GP paddock. I'm sure he's been, um, you know, he's been shopped around. People have been chasing him to get into the GPs, but he won't, he's got to that stage now in his career that he's too old to get onto a, you know, one of the factory bikes, the Repsol Hondas or the Yamaha or the Suzuki or whatever. He'd have to go into one of those second string teams, the second tier teams. We know what happens there. And as he said, he said, I'm not going there to earn nothing and not not have a chance to do anything, <clears throat> which would be very demoralising for a guy of his calibre. And it's a shame for us that we're not going to really see him strut his stuff on the world stage. Sure, he's done a couple of wild cards and he's got a couple of top 10 finishes and stuff. But to see him there week in, week out with the best, I reckon uh, we're being denied a little bit by that. And uh, he's going to stay in the. Kawasaki Green for a number of years. I think he signed for another three or two years he signed for this year. So that's 19 and 20. What happens then, I'd say, well, he's probably earning the best part of That's about €3 million Euro off Kawasaki plus all his endorsements. So he's not on a bad word, I suppose, you know. No, not okay. bad pocket money. No, exactly. So, <laughs> but how, how much longer can he go for, Braxy, like this? Well, I think another couple of years. Yeah. Um, I suppose guys never get sick of winning. Um, but I suppose it's the way you win. Um, and now everybody's expecting to go out there and win it because he's been so dominant in the last four years, particularly this year when he's uh, that was win number 12 out of uh, 22 races. Um, you know, that's where do you go from here? Um, there's only one way, and that's backwards, unless, well, you should probably lift the bar again somehow next year. Mm. Uh, but then. Well, it'll be interesting to see next year in Shebex because we've got, you know, Tom Sykes is moving on. There are all these, all these um, team changes and stuff. Uh, Johnny Ray, like we said, the staying with Kawasaki. Um, be interesting to see um, who takes his spot in the team beside him, uh, whether the young Turk, um, Ratsak, um, uh, what's his name? Oh, the man with the wheelbarrow name. I think his name um, escapes me at the moment. Um, pardon me. Ratsak Leoglu. Yeah. Uh, whether he steps up, he's a Kane and Sokolu 
uh, protege from Turkey, whether he stops up to the team. The wheelbarrow uh, name. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've actually got a Turkey's mate who actually teaches me some of the pronunciations because of what they look like on paper. Oh, they totally different, correct. Uh, totally different. But no, it's going to be interesting next year. Well, plenty to talk about next year. We've still got two rounds of the World Superbikes to go. We've got the um, inaugural round, the debut of the World Superbikes in Argentina at a brand new circuit before the... Uh, Season swan song at what is now the traditional ending of the season at Qatar in the desert. So, and I'd say that Johnny Ray's going to increase his win ratio by another four wins in the next two uh, in the next two meetings. All right. We would also need to have a chat about a first in oh. in motorcycle world championships and Anna Carrasco becoming the yeah, first glad female. You glad you mentioned that, Tony. Yeah, because. Uh, I think it is brilliant for the sport. Motorsport, whether it's four wheels or two wheels, we've seen it in drag racing and stuff in the past. Um, it's one of the few areas where um, the, the, those of the opposite genetic persuasion can be on the same playing field and level playing field as everybody else. And as I've said for years, you put your helmet, your boots, your leathers, your gloves on, and you get on a bike, and you're just the same as everybody else. Yeah. And Anna's proved that. Um, she's got a wealth of experience. She did... Um, Moto 3 for a couple of years back, I think in 2012, 2013, got a top 10 finish in the uh, Moto 3 class. And as you've seen, Tony, the headbangers in that class are not to be messed yeah, with. And no, uh, it's much the same in this titular class of Super Sport 300, which is for the rookies coming through. We've got our own Aussie Tommy Edwards having his first year in it, got a pole position at Aragon, and he was third on the grid last night. And um, he was right in the mix of it until about halfway when his bike expired on him, unfortunately. Poor old Anna. She had a shocker of a weekend. She qualified about 23rd position. She'd gone in with a 10-point lead in the championship. But looking at the grid, you thought, oh, she's going to be up against it. But uh, the favourite, his bike expired. And then the other bloke, he thought he'd won it. And he he'd, um, was leading up, uh, Perez. He was leading on the last lap but got overtaken. He's crossed the line thinking he's won the world championship. Poor Anna's finished, I think, in 13th position. Yeah, correct. She was halfway around the, her, um, the victory lap or the slowdown lap, and she's like, you can see the dejection, the body language on her with just the way she was sitting on the bike. She thought she lost the championship. And then she's like, looked around, and must have been one of the masters going, hey, hey, you've won, you've won. Because then all the emotion came out of her. She was broke down and cried. I suppose I'd be breaking down and cried if I won the world championship too. But um, And they put the new <laughs> the T-shirt on her, the customary world championship T-shirt, which I rolled on the floor laughing with, because uh, on the front of it, it's got Ride Like a Girl, world champion 2018. So um, she did an awesome result. Great for the sport. Great that um, this will inspire a lot more girls to get into it. Not that we're not getting more females coming into it. It's uh, You look at our local fields, and, and even in that field last night, um, Maria Herrera was another uh, woman in the film. She finished fourth overall. So um, I reckon it's brilliant. Uh, it is um, brilliant. And the amazing thing was, Braxy, was that Mika Perez, who could have won the championship, fought for, as you mentioned, that, that lead on the last lap. I think it changed a couple of times. Perez <laughs> dropped back to second place at the check and flag, and she wins, and uh, Carrasco well, wins by one point. If Perez wins, Perez is champion. Yeah, wins by four Just points. amazing. Yeah, and it's, um, it's one of those titular classes. You know, it's um, Super Sport 300. It's uh, introduced into the World Championship in um, 2017, the beginning of last year. And basically, they mirrored what the Australian rules are for our Super Sport 300. They gave them a few extra little bits because of the different, particularly now with these Kawasaki 400s into it. But it is a pretty well production-based class. 
and it is, I think, you can't be any more um, older than 24 to get into it, similar to what the Moto 3 wheels are, so that we get these young kids coming through. And as you saw last night, the battles of, there was, I think there was 12 of them in the freight train at the end of the race. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And you put people on equal machine and the cream rises at the top and aren't it through a year of consistency, you know, pole positions, race wins and stuff. Um, it wasn't given a tour on a platter, mate. She was elbowing the guys out of the way as much as they were elbowing her out of the way. And, uh, and I, what really uh, hit home to me was in part two, mate. The, um, the level of respect from everybody. Um, and it wasn't uh, respect for uh, a woman, it was respect for what you've done as a rider. I don't think, you know, it was just everybody was so happy to see her get up there after the work she put in. So, brilliant result for the sport. Um, you know, and um, the super sport race was another good one. Uh, lose Jules Clusel putting a French flag on the top of the French podium uh, at the French land and main course. So, good, good racing all around. I was expecting that. So, That'll be reconvened in a couple of weeks' time in Argentina. But then in the meantime, which we'll all focus on, um, Tony, is the flyaways with the Moto GP next weekend too. Very much looking forward to those, Braxy. We'll have a chat about those more next week. Just very quickly, uh, before I let you go, that romano Fanati incident now looks like it's going to end up in court with apparently an Italian newspaper uh, reporting that a public prosecutor is going to char- have Fanati charged with private violence, which uh, is a law that they use when... Drivers cut up one another on a freeway. Yeah, well, I think it's. it's um, we know what the Italian law process is like. We've seen that <laughs> politicians in their elections yes. over the years that there's no real. If there's been a real rip, they just oh, get the white out, and that we just will change that one really quickly. Um, this has really set a precedent, Tony, and it's scary that if. Um, and I know there's a lot of been a lot of knee-jerk reaction. There's been a lot of ongoing reaction to this with Carmelo Espelita getting in and trying to get the um, the penalties uh, reduced or reversed, which is very, very bad for the sport when you've got the promoters trying to dictate. Yeah. The FIM came in. Um, it immediately happened, for the, if I've forgotten about it, he was sacked by his team there and then on that weekend. Then he was sacked by MB Augusto. He was supposed to ride for it next year in the Moto 2 category. Um, then the FIM suspended his license till the end of the year. So they've done all the right things for that, but then these things are being reversed. So now this is where this Italian, the lawyers have come in. Hello, there's a very few bucks to be made here. Where yeah. do those lawyers come from? Um, part of my cynicism. But um, I think it's really set a precedent. And if this can go to court um, and using a road rule on a racetrack, what do, where do we where do we go from here? Mm. It's um, I know we've got to do something. We don't want that sort of behaviour in the sport. And I think the powers that be have done a good job to try and get that out of the sport. And part of me, I don't think we'll be seeing that anything like that no. again in a hurry in the next few years anyway. But for the outside to be brought, an outside rule or law to be brought in that's used on a public road onto a racetrack, you know, I don't think that's um, clutching at straws a bit, isn't it? Or just yeah. trying to well, milk we'll, it for everything it's worth? We'll find out. Uh, time will tell, Braxy. Hey, always great to catch up with you, mate. We'll uh, have a talk to you next week when we uh, look at what's happened uh, in the world of MotoGP. No worries, mate. Have a good one. Good on you, bro. Mark Brax joining yeah, us mate. here on The Grid. That word because you know you can't touch this. You can't touch this. So there you have it, another episode of On The Grid wrapped up and locked in the can. And as we mentioned with Gary O'Brien, really looking forward to this week in Bathurst. We'll be bringing you podcasts every day 
of the week up in Bathurst. So make sure you stay tuned to mypodcasthouse.com and also catch us on Facebook as well. At least two, three, maybe even four podcasts a day bringing you up to date with all the action that has been happening on the mountain and on race day. It is going to be action-packed. We'll be pumping them out, interviews with drivers, getting you right in to the mountain if you're not there at all. So look forward to bringing you that throughout the week right here on mypodcasthouse.com. We'll catch you again soon.